Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Today's guest is Malika Jabali. Malika is an attorney, activist, and writer based in New York. She is a contributing writer to Essence Magazine and a frequent contributor to The Guardian. Her work also appears in Current Affairs, Jacobin, The Intercept, and elsewhere. Malika is also my first returning guest, and I was very happy to have her back. Since we last spoke, she has written extensively about the 2020 candidates and deepened her reporting that began with her excellent current affairs feature, The Color of Economic Anxiety. That article won the award for Best General Feature from the New York Association of Black Journalists. Last week, Malika released her first film, Left Out, which challenges many of the assumptions about what working-class Midwesterners want out of their politics. The eight-minute film is available for free on YouTube and well worth your time. We discuss it, as well as how economic anxiety can depress voter turnout, the underrated importance of people who voted for Obama but didn't turn out in 2016, assumptions made about Midwesterners, the myth of the moderate Democrat, Malika's advice for 2020 candidates, the lack of diversity in early primary states and how it impacts the nominating process, why black voters don't like Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden's implosion, Bernie's campaign and rhetoric around race, whether Bernie is a class reductionist, how he could be better at speaking to the intersections of race and class, identity politics as it was originally conceived and how it has been misappropriated, the false choice between emphasizing identity-based oppression and solidarity, and the lack of representation in socialist groups like the DSA. You can find Malaika on Twitter at Malaika Jabali and me at Garrison Lovely. I've also created an email address for the show. I welcome any feedback, guest ideas, or just a hello at mostinterestingpeople27 at gmail.com. Here is Malika Jabali. Malika, thank you so much for joining us again. You're the first return guest. Thanks for having me, Garrison. I just had a sip of water, so excuse the pause. No worries, no worries. <laughs> um, yeah, really excited to have you back. I enjoyed our first conversation. I did too. We talked about a lot. Yeah, yeah, we did. I think um, we'll be a little bit more focused today, but who knows? Mm-hmm. Might, might roll a little bit. And uh, since we last spoke, you have made a film. Um, can you tell us about that? I have. When did we speak? Was it like last? It was, it was warm out. It was in the summer. It was the summer. Yeah. yeah. I, so I had, I started this project. Um, it really started when I got at work published in current affairs, the color of economic anxiety, which I highly recommend to anybody listening, still more relevant than ever. Listen, thank you. I'm, I'm glad it is uh, pretty evergreen, but the kind of the research that went into that basically went into this film and I wanted to end on a less kind of uh, somber note because <laughs> it's, you know, it's about economic anxiety. The piece was, so I wanted to do a film about what are people thinking about for the midterms in the 2020 elections in terms of what kind of policies can actually, you know, materially change their lives? Mm-hmm. And um, for those who are unfamiliar, the color of economic—excuse me—the color of economic anxiety was kind of turning the narrative of the Midwestern kind of blue-collar voter on its head by focusing on um, the black voters who have been disillusioned. But instead of them swinging from Obama to Trump, a lot of them swung from Obama to nobody. Uh, many people stayed home. And so, you know, I, I went back, filmed uh, before the 2018 midterms, met with some like canvassers, organizers, just everyday black folks and said, you know, are these politics too left for you guys? Because everyone is telling us on MSNBC and CNN, Claire McCaskill is saying that this is too far left and Tammy Duckworth and Jake Tapper, they're all insinuating that free healthcare and free education is too far left for the Midwest. and. People really looked at me with, I mean, they were aghast. <laughs> like they were just, they thought it was really bizarre that this could be the narrative around some basic social services. And so I wanted to capture that. Yeah, it's, it's very entertaining just to see kind of the stunned look on their face. Like, who's telling you this information? Yeah, I mean, it's, I was like, it's, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> like, they almost thought it was me. It's like, no, it's not coming from me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you do a good job as well of showing when you say Midwestern working class in most people's minds, they probably think of white people, right? And that's yeah. what the news is showing, and that's like the focus is like the white working class, the white working class. So what's, what's the problem with that narrative? I think there's a couple of problems with it. One, you don't humanize you know, black people as workers. I think when you think of workers, there's um, a certain 
there's something that that comes there's a connotation around that it's people who you know they're they're working really hard and through circumstances like things didn't work out so when factories left then it's some sort of systemic issue it's not some sort of human failure mm -hmm. and unfortunately the way that we talk about black economic anxiety if we talk about it at all is through some sort of culture of poverty where folks uh, have been passing on, you know, maybe this underclass, um, people are impoverished, and it's creating a whole host of other issues. You know, you think about the ways that we've uh, criminalized, you know, crack cocaine versus the opioid crisis, for instance. Um, a lot of things that we experience that have, you know, these, these larger um, macroeconomic factors that affect us are seen as these sort of interpersonal um, personal failings and so I wanted to connect worker with black people <laughs> yeah and we were we were disproportionately not we because I've never worked in a factory but mm -hmm. uh, black men were disproportionately working in the manufacturing sector in Wisconsin and so when that sector left so did the economic base for these communities and then you combine combine that with uh, the intense segregation in Wisconsin some say it's the worst in the country when you combine those two elements you just have people who do not have jobs and they don't have access to the ones that left for the suburbs as well. Um, and you end up with about a 45% black unemployment rate, which is the worst in the country and wow. one of the worst, it's worse than it was in, uh, since the Great Depression. That's um, incredible. That's... Yeah, and so uh, getting people familiar and comfortable with thinking of black people as workers and also saying, hey, this also makes a huge difference in elections. Yeah. So even if you don't care so much about sort of the ethical and moral implications of that, it makes a difference politically because in the Midwest and the Rust Belt, you have a lot of black voters who set out. Um, in Wisconsin, the black voter turnout was the lowest in the state's recorded history. So as, as far back as the census recorded these things by race. Um, you'd never saw a black voter turnout that low. And so my, the case that I'm arguing is that if you don't deal, if you don't address people's economic anxiety with you know, some sort of um, material measures, then they won't feel like the political process means anything to them and they won't be involved. And people make that case for you know, Rust Belt, white working class voters all the time and say that's what made them vote for Trump, but people don't really apply that same sort of you know, logic to black people for whatever reason. Yeah, there's a bunch of debates that have been going on, economic anxiety versus racial resentment or racism um, being the primary explanation for what happened in 2016. Uh, and then kind of separately is this focus on Obama to Trump voters. Like, there's a few million people that voted for Obama in 2012 and then voted for Trump in 2016. And you know that's a pretty interesting population, right? Because I think just the normal explanation of like, oh, these are just like angry white people who are like racist, whatever. Like they were, there's probably a lot of that, but then they still voted for Obama. So it's like, there's something interesting there. Right. But you make a really good point, which is that the people who just voted for Obama and did not vote in 2016 are perhaps just as important or maybe even more uh, viable targets for Democrats in 2020. Yeah, that that is the uh, the conclusion that I wanted to come out of that with for the current affairs piece, and that's kind of like the the beat that I've been drumming for mm -hmm. the past few years. And then for the film is to say, okay, well then how do you win those voters back? Like you can win people across race with these things. So don't just focus on, the, I mean, the Trump, the Obama to Trump uh, demographic. I think is going to be important just as the Obama to you know staying at home vote is important mm -hmm. so both of those things are are going to be important so there shouldn't be this disproport like ridiculously disproportionate attention paid on the former and not the latter yeah um, and so just an example in Wisconsin you know the the black voter uh, black voters about 88,000 of them stayed home compared to 2012 if you kind of do the math and look at the the voter turnout rates and Hillary Clinton lost the state by like 22,000 votes. Yeah. Um, and then overall, Donald Trump just won the presidency by about 100,000 votes. <laughs> Between Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and, and Michigan. Michigan, yeah. Yeah, 100,000 votes, wow. that's it. Wow. And so if you can get just a few more black voters by saying, hey, we're gonna give you some things that actually can change your lives, yeah. um, then you've got a, like a pretty loyal voting base because these people already vote Democratic. You don't have to convince them too much. Mm -hmm. You don't have to convince them and say, you know, well, if I give you this, then you know, Mexicans will get that, so I don't know. They're like, okay, whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. we, the legal immigrant or the uh, you know, undocumented workers, whatever, abortion, whatever, like, 
evangelicism isn't affecting them as much as you know maybe some Obama or Trump voters are is so um, I think it's important to recognize like just how easily winnable those voters can be yeah yeah you cite this uh, research on the Obama to non-voters and as compared to the Obama to Trump voters you're alluding to this the people who went from Obama to Trump are ideologically more conservative than the typical Democrat and frankly a lot harder to win over on a lot of the main mainstream issues in the Democratic Party today. But the Obama to non-voters are actually like pretty solid Democrats. They just weren't inspired to vote in, uh, in 2016. And then there's also millions of people who voted and did not vote for president. And if those people had just like broken the way they did in 2012, then Hillary probably would have won as well. Right. Yeah. So I, I think the film, it's eight minutes long, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Seven minutes and 58 seconds amazing i made it under my my limit <laughs> and so this you released this like on sunday and it's now wednesday right? I, I released it monday 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 mm-hmm. great day of iowa caucuses what is the how have the results been so far i've gotten really good feedback i mean really good responses from it um it's more of like an op doc than a documentary it's not like this cinematic you know verite filmmaking it's i had a you know an agenda going in sure, sure. i wanted to get these particular voices i had no idea what they would say mm-hmm. um I mean, I had an inkling just based on kind of stats that people would be more progressive there, but I, I had no idea what they would say. And I just wanted to go around and, and talk to them and have, a, have them tell me like, you know, what they thought about these things. So um, yeah, I've gotten good feedback from, you know, folks in the Midwest, a few of the people that I interviewed who, um, you know, retweeted it and said, you know, thank you so much for like showing what the Midwest is like. So yeah. I appreciated that. That's very cool. And were there any, uh, anybody you spoke with who were not really what you like, they were not saying what you expected them to say. Like, did anything get cut from the film that like kind of goes cuts against the narrative? Uh, no, I mean, I, there were some. So that there are some canvassers that I interviewed, and they didn't even like really understand the concept of kind of these regional like distinctions. Like, oh, they saying that about the Midwest? That's crazy. I was like, well, you guys are the Midwest. They're saying this about y'all. They're yeah. like, oh, really? That's weird. It was like that kind of thing. Um, I mean, but to be fair, like I didn't spend, you know, I work a full-time job, so yeah. I had to do this over a long weekend. And so in like the four or five days that I did talk to people, I didn't have I didn't have anything that would push back on mm-hmm. what my theory was, which would have been you know nice um, to have some sort of challenge and a little tension, but nobody really disagreed. Yeah. In the time that I was there. Yeah, and I think there's this kind of broader point, which is that ideology is not as big of a driver of people's voting decisions in the United States as you know people like the pundit class might expect, right? So people will say like oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a moderate and like my first choice is Joe Biden and my second choice is Bernie Sanders. And it's like, that doesn't really track ideologically. They're pretty much at the opposite ends of each other within the 2020 primary uh, candidates. And yeah, to them, it might be that like, they, they're both familiar with them. They have good name recognition. They, they think they're like, trustworthy or whatever it might be. Like people vote for so many different reasons. And that's kind of like this opening because some people, when they push back against the left, they'll say, oh, you know, so few of Americans would ever even consider voting for a socialist. Um, or, you know, most Democrats don't identify as liberal. They de- identify as like moderate or conservative. Um, but I guess like within, within uh, black Democrats as well, they're disproportionately identifying as moderate or conservative relative to the overall Democratic base. Um, I get, like, what do you chalk that up to and how much, uh, how much should we read into th- those kind of results? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's something very American about that to want to claim this title of being moderate. Because when you ask people about the issues, they're very much not moderate yeah. issues. I mean, I mean, what even are moderate issues? Do they have issues? It's like do a little bit of health care, a little bit of free education, you know, a little bit of education. I don't know. It's like tax vouchers or tax credits right, or tax vouchers credits, or whatever. Like for market whatever solutions. Thing, yeah. Like people don't even understand what that is. Like what's LIHTC, you know, what's low yeah. income low income housing tax credit. Like they don't know what this stuff is. Yeah. So like, no, just like give me some, pub, you know, give people public housing and give people, you know, enough um, social wealth, welfare programs. So I think when you actually pin people down on policy more, it's like, oh yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, 
and there, for instance, like there was a, a study that was done, it's like this uh, Black Futures Lab, they did a census of about 30,000 black people. It's like the largest, I don't know where, exactly where they're getting that from. They say it's the largest um, census of black people since Reconstruction. Maybe they just mean exclusively because, mm -hmm. you know, the regular census, they interview Trying millions of people, yeah. you know. Um, but it might be like the most, ex like, targeted exclusively to black people. So they interviewed about 30,000 black people all over the country. And the main issues tracked with kind of what's on the progressive plank of the Democratic um, agenda or the, the Democratic, you know, progressives that have been running for office. So healthcare was like the number one issue. I think 90% yeah. of people had concerns about healthcare, like 85%, I'm kind of throwing numbers out there, but they're in like the high 80s, like 90s. 85% of people were like, we need, you know, free public education. So all of these things, and these were people who were a little bit more establishment Democrats. Um, these aren't like just everyday working class people. A lot of them were more kind of involved in the system. And if they were saying these things, then I would imagine that, you know, average working class folks who are not as engaged in the electoral process would probably be even more strongly, you know, affiliated with these types of policies. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, people don't have a good sense of what they mean in general when they identify with some like position. And yeah, to your point, like what, what is a moderate? What is a moderate uh, proposal for these things? And, and historically, it's often just been like an overly complicated policy agenda that is satisfactory to like, corporate interests and doesn't really solve the problem like Obamacare. And it's like a fairly unpopular uh, entitlement program where you compare it to Medicare or Social Security, which are these big universal programs that are wildly popular, and they would be considered much more left-wing. Um, and, and I think that kind of, and polling on Medicare for all is, is really complicated. It often depends on how you ask the question. Yeah. Um, and there's been a lot of you know muddying the waters with like saying you're gonna kick 160 million people off their private insurance and abolish an entire industry. And that sounds very scary to a lot of folks. Right, I um, mean, but even even with that, I think there's been some recent polling out that says like 60%, I think it was like 60% of Iowa caucus goers said that they were comfortable eliminating private insurance oh, really? for, wow. for Medicare for all. So that's, great. that's the majority of, of you know, caucus goers. Yeah. And I think it was in exit polls, but I could be mistaken because no, who knows the data anymore? I don't yeah. know what's going on there. Yes. Yeah. And <laughs> we're going to move on to 2020 shortly. Um, and I, I guess the, this analysis, understanding what happened in 2016 is super important because of the implications it has for 2020 and beyond. Um, and so if you were advising a campaign um, based on the analysis that you've done in Milwaukee and, and just like looking at, uh, black voters more broadly in the country, what would you recommend to them? I would go um, get hundreds of canvassers into these communities in Milwaukee, the north side, the west side, and do a lot of door knocking and engage them. Um, I think you can follow, I, I think it depends, it's it's going to necessitate a very like strong ground game to be successful, mm -hmm. so I think, um, the model to follow would be somebody like AOC who, you know, when her, I mean, even though a lot of her votes were like in these gentrifying districts, she still did the work of knocking on people's doors and she did that grind on a regular basis. But if you are already kind of, you know, putting these voters aside and saying, oh, they don't come out there frequently or they're not gonna vote for a socialist or whatever, then you're, you know, you're losing the battle right there because there are a lot of people who would, find you know these issues very attractive um and in wisconsin for instance even though bernie sanders struggled with the black vote everywhere in the south i think he averaged about like 10 or 11 percent of black voters in those like rust belt swing states he averaged like 30 percent mm -hmm. and in wisconsin it was the highest of all of the swing states it was 31 percent well, so this is he, against hillary in the 2016 yeah primaries. in the primary yeah the 2016 primary um, and so there's already kind of this, people's interests have been peaked there. Um, and so I think it's just, you're gonna have to go knock on doors. Like the, the group that I uh, interviewed, the canvassers were from an organization called Black Leaders Organizing Communities. And they, they do that on a like regular basis. They just do door knocking and find out what people want. Yeah, and are they supporting any candidate or are they just doing issues based? It's issues based. I don't know if they're going to be endorsing someone later. They might. I know that they um, have been taking candidate interviews. 
I don't know if that's going to lead to any endorsements or not. Um, but I think a lot of that type of work that they did is what helped solidify Tony Evers win um, in 2018. So they had him go along while they were door knocking and, you know. And who's Tony Evers? He's the governor now of Wisconsin who gotcha. replaced Scott Walker. I'm showing my coastal elitism. <laughs> no, so that's very important. Scott Walker was one of the most conservative anti-labor governors in the country. And his defeat was actually like a very big deal, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they went around, they had him go, you know, follow these canvassers door to door and he won by a hair. So. Yeah. No, it really does matter. I, th I think the research on political organizing has canvassing, like door knocking as the best, um, you know, per dollar, per hour, whatever. And then everything else is like a distant second or third. Mm -hmm. um, I think then it's like calling and then I don't know, we're texting falls into this, but yeah. uh, I did some calls for Bernie last weekend, two weeks ago, um, two weeks ago before Iowa, and we ran out of phone numbers, and it was like getting a lot of bots and people with the wrong number or whatever, um, but at least with door knocking, I've had like much better experience uh, doing that in the past. Yeah. Um, cool. So we're recording this two days after the Iowa caucus clusterfuck of 2020. Um, we still don't know for sure who won. But right now, Bernie and Buttigieg are basically one, two, or depending on how you slice it, and Bernie won the popular vote, and that seems like likely to hold. Buttigieg has the state delegate equivalent, which <laughs> shouldn't really matter, because um, they're going to have the same overall delegates. And the big story, I think, of this, other than Bernie and Buttigieg doing well, is that Biden got like fourth or fifth place. Um, and so he was expected to, you know, going into this a few months ago, probably win Iowa and just, he was the front runner. He was a guy to beat. Um, I don't want to get too bogged down in details that might change, but how are you processing these results so far? Um, I think one by thinking about um, just what you mentioned in terms of Joe Biden's lack of electability. I think yeah. we are kind of seeing um, where this is playing out, which a lot of, of us, you know, independent journalists have been calling out for months to question Joe Biden's electability. I mean, he challenged voters in Iowa not to vote for him yeah. and to push up contests and <laughs> call them fat. Like, vote for the other guy. They're like, okay. It's like, cool. Yeah, yeah. We can. There's still time to do that. Yeah, it's not a general. Like, there are other options that are Democrats. <laughs> it's like, cool. Yeah. We, I, thank you for the advice, sir. Um, so I, I think we are seeing kind of common sense sort of play out here in terms of his electability because we knew that he dealt, you know, he had to deal with his practice of, of having gaffes. We knew that he struggled with really exciting people beyond um, what the establishment has already been, been saying in terms of the policies that they're pushing for. It's like, um, healthcare, I don't know. He doesn't really have very uh, substantive policy proposals. Um, and these are things that people are experiencing all over the country in terms of like, not having adequate housing, you know, not having, you know, adequate wages and huge wealth gaps. Like people in the Midwest experience this too, and he's not talking about that. So if you don't want somebody who is gaff prone, then you'll vote for a Buttigieg. So he's, you know, a better option. I think he's just a younger version of Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, except he does not have really much viability outside of Iowa. So I think the weakness of Biden and the um, this mirage of strength of, of Buttigieg is uh, really resonating with me because it is troublesome that we've been talking about Iowa not being representative of the Democratic electorate for years now. And it seems that people are kind of getting getting the point <laughs> they're getting the hint because it's affecting like their favorite candidates there it's affecting left politics and if we do not get at that then we're going to continue seeing this problem if iowa and new hampshire which don't represent the democratic electorate are going to be you know first in sort of creating this this momentum for mm -hmm. candidates so for instance iowa and new hampshire they have like a combined about 5% black population <laughs> and the democratic yeah. electorate is 25% black. At least yeah. that's the number that voted in 2016. Um, and so that's gonna be a real barrier to I think progressive politics if you're not looking at the diversity of the democratic base. Yeah, well, it seems like the Iowa caucuses will be called into question more than, more than ever after this. 
they can't even get the results out in time, um, that might be at least a silver lining here because, I mean, it, it is insane given how inaccessible the caucuses are for people who don't, you know, work a normal nine to five, people with disabilities, older folks, like people who have kids that have to take care of, you know, all of not as much access to the caucuses. It's not a secret ballot. Um, but yeah, the much bigger issue, I think, is just the lack of representation um, in Iowa and New Hampshire of the larger Democratic electorate. And then it makes it you know, harder to find a candidate that's going to appeal to everybody. And Buttigieg is only really viable in these really, really white states. Yeah. And he has no path to victory without getting more black support, which seems unlikely at this point. It, yeah, it really does. I mean, he's got, I think, 33. I mean, estimates from reports are that he has 33 field offices in Iowa, which is more than all of the other states where he has field offices combined. Wow. So he's in Nevada, South Carolina, Indiana, of course, and New Hampshire. So his state presence in Iowa is more than all of those other states. He has a combined like 28 field offices there. Wow. So he's really like front loading the support to create this sort of fictional, you know, momentum for himself. Mm -hmm. And it's really just gaming the system. And so if somebody has the ability to game the system like that when they're not viable, I think is is a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so like, let's get into the specifics. What do you attribute Buttigieg's inability to get black support to? There are so many things, and I actually, I don't know if or when it's coming out. I, I wrote a Guardian piece oh, great. about this, and I think it's a, it's a combination of um, his, I don't know, I think, I guess you could call it his decision-making. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because, one, he hasn't really done the sort of engagement. As I mentioned before, he has 33 campaign offices in Iowa. He's got four in South Carolina. And South Carolina is going to be a key state in sort of these early states to um, kind of decide the direction of where these, the trajectory of where these candidates go. And he doesn't have a single city in South Carolina that's majority black versus um, Bernie Sanders, who has a presence in Orangeburg, South Carolina, which is like 75% black. So if you know that you're already struggling with the black vote and you're struggling in a key early state of South Carolina and you don't have a single field office in one of the majority black states in South Carolina, you're, that's a tactical error. Yeah. Um, and just a, a number of other tactical er errors, like using this Frederick Douglass plan to tout black support and then kind of creating support out of whole cloth from people who didn't actually support the plan. And then most of the endorsers, or not most, but a, a large number of them were actually white people who supported this Frederick Douglass plan for black America. Yeah, which so he claimed, the thing is he, he claimed that they were black supporters of the plan, right? Well, he, he, he so there's a sort of like kind of slyness going on because mm -hmm. he's just said, this is, we've got all these endorsers for the Frederick Douglass plan for black America and that he, kind of name-checked some prominent black leaders. Mm. So you, there was this implication that these were black people who were supporting this black plan. Yeah. But when you look at the numbers, that's actually not how you know it turned out. And um, a bunch of them actually didn't endorse the plan, right? Well, yeah, several of them are like, I. <laughs> he basically did like a, a Netflix free trial situation. Where it was like, <laughs> if you don't respond within seven days, you're going to be considered an endorser. Yeah. Um, and so there are some very like strategic decisions that he's making with this, how he's engaging black people. And then also the policy measures. He hasn't gone far enough in his own home hometown of South Bend, Indiana, where um, the black people are losing in virtually every measure, more so than the, the rest of the country, like on average, when it comes to kind of home ownership and wealth inequality and income inequality. They're doing the worst on these things, and he hasn't even adequately addressed that in his small town. So how do we know you're gonna make these decisions? as the president of you know a country yeah. <laughs> with a significant black population. Um, and none of this is to say that he cannot change these things, but again, given the fact that he doesn't have the sort of ground game that he would need, it doesn't seem like he is going to gain much traction after New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, the good thing, I guess, is that the next few primaries in Super Tuesday, there will be enough diversity in the Democratic uh, primaries and caucuses that somebody like Buttigieg is unlikely to do very well there. And so he'll probably be uh, kind of an afterthought at that point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, the news cycle moves pretty swiftly. So all this, you know, brouhaha that we've got right now, I think we're going to kind of forget about it in, in a month. Um, yeah. He's got like 2% black support in South Carolina, 
which is up from 0% in November. <laughs> he's making progress. Yeah. Maybe he'll get to 4% in another two months if he's yeah, right. If he keeps doubling, you know. <laughs> By next year, growth, yeah. yeah, he might represent, you know, the, the average black population. So, um, Yeah, and I guess Joe Biden is still the overall front runner from like a polling average standpoint, but that doesn't really reflect what has got to be a hit after losing this battle in Iowa. Um, but Biden himself and uh, a lot of the people talking about him cite his like rock solid black support as why he's going to go the distance and, and be the nominee. Um, I think we, we talked about Joe a bit last time and mm-hmm. things have obviously developed since then. But, you know, what, what do you think is, you know, can explain Joe Biden's black support and do you think that support is as solid as, as Biden likes to claim it is? I think a lot of it, I think it's a combination of um, black voters tending to be more pragmatic. I don't know how much it has to do with actual ideology um, given, you know, kind of just the the variety of, of black experiences and sort of black beliefs because you have younger black voters who favor Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. or at least it's a tight race depending on which poll you look at. Um, and it seems to be that that the qualification for who's young keeps kind of getting higher and higher. So 40 and 50 year olds now, you know, there's some gaining momentum for Sanders. So I think there's, you know, it's some of it might be this idea of electability that's swirling around Joe Biden for, you know, unjustifiably, where they think that he has a better chance of beating Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it is familiarity. He associated with a black person for years. So it's like, okay, he seems cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, and if you think about kind of how canvassing works, if people just see you a lot, like that really goes a long way. And so in a place like South Carolina, for instance, where he's doing extremely well, he has been visiting the state for decades with, you know, Jim Clyburn, who's a representative there, a black representative. And people are just familiar with him. So for like two decades or so, he's been kind of making these stops at black churches or whatever. So he's got like a 20 year head start yeah. <laughs> kind of with his ground game there. Um, to the extent, I mean, I don't know how, how broad it is, but people do recognize that. Um, so I think there's familiarity. I think this, this idea that he's electable, but you know, this is still, a, you know, we've got several months left of this primary, and I think the more focus that's going to be paid attention to him, where he actually has to speak, <laughs> and there's more debate time dedicated to him, I think we're going to start recognizing that he is not as electable as, you know, the, the media narrative has kind of created for him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, there's a video of him being led around by the arm uh, by a, a staffer a few days ago, and... He's now not really responding to questions. He's just handing out slips of paper. And right. I'm thinking of like Joker where he's giving out like a card saying like, I, I can't talk to you because I've got this thing going on. It's just like, how do you have a, a major party candidate who whose mind is just not there anymore? And, and that's, yeah. I don't know. It's like, I think Joe Biden's record has been enormously destructive to a lot of people. Um, he's responsible for the 94 crime bill really led the way on the war in Iraq, uh, bankruptcy bill. There's so many different things that Biden has like serious blood on his hands for. Um, mm-hmm. But I also like feel for the guy personally. It's just, he shouldn't be doing this. He shouldn't be. Yeah, it's, it seems like he's struggling just to kind of be and think and talk. Um, you know, if you look at his debate performance. Um, and so I think that people are gonna start paying attention more for the average person who's not on Twitter, like us crazy people, <laughs> you know, they don't see these like these clips on, you know, around the clock where he's, you know, in the um, congressional chambers talking about the crime bill and where he is uh, criminalizing, you know, young black people um, through his like through his rhetoric. They're not seeing this this media on a regular basis. So I think now it's kind of a little bit early f- for the average person. I was like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm just used to seeing him with Barack and seeing the memes that maybe their grandchildren sent them or their kids sent them. Um, but they, I think folks still aren't familiar with sort of his policy. Yeah. So that will come out more and more over the next few months. Yeah, I mean, Bernie got some flack for pushing this very true narrative that Joe Biden has wanted to cut Social Security and Medicare many times throughout his career. And uh, I think that's like a pretty effective line of attack because there's, there's two of the most popular programs in the country, as, as we discussed before. And 
uh, Biden has a really bad record of, of trying to freeze them or make sure they're sustainable or whatever, you know, uh, malarkey he's yeah. Just <laughs> yeah, whatever malarkey he's using to describe it. Um, and that's just deadly in an election where Trump is not going to be afraid to run to his left on things and be like, oh, we would never, ever, you know, touch your precious entitlements. And uh, I mean, hopefully it seems less and less likely that he'll be the nominee. Um, but who knows? There's still- yeah, this is a great, I've never seen a, in you know, my adult lifetime, I've never seen a primary where this, it's kind of this up in the air. Um, it can almost go in any direction. You know, I think there are some ways that it's leaning, but you still never know what, you know, might pop out yeah. later on. Yeah. And so let's talk about who is now the front runner, I think pretty definitively, uh, Bernard Sanders, <laughs> Senator from Vermont. Um, listeners will know that he's my favorite candidate um, and had a whole episode dedicated to him. But curious to hear what your thoughts are on Bernie as a candidate and his campaign so far and uh, where you think things are going to go for him. I think he has been able to build on the popular popularity that he garnered for himself in 2016. Um, you know, he's extremely consistent. He's been saying the same things for the last 40 years because the conditions that created those statements have not changed. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people recognize that. And I think he's going to do better this year than in 2016 because of um, because of kind of the normalization of, of his policies and the fact that he spent more time kind of on the ground with a variety of, of groups, um, like a, a diverse selection of, of you know demographics. Um, and so I think between people being more familiar with him and his policy and him, him having like the surrogates and the team together to pull out more folks, I think he's going to do better. Um, you know, a lot of people would say that he won Iowa. Yeah. And he didn't win in 2016. It was it was a close call, though, which is yeah. nice. Yeah, he, he may have actually won the popular vote then as well. And oh, gotten really? Screwed in this. Yeah, it, we don't know. That's part of the push that he made was to make all these different measures uh, happen. And then people are blaming Bernie because the Iowa Democratic Party fucked it up so badly. They're like, oh, it was too many measures. It's like three that numbers was, he had to report per district. How many years ago did they, was that though? Wasn't that like three like, years ago? Yeah, like 2017 they, probably. Yeah. You <laughs> guys had three years to get this together no, at it, least. Come on, don't blame the guy. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, I think he, I think he can go further this year. I think his campaign is doing a letter, a, a better job at sort of making the connections um, between sort of race and class intersections that I think a lot of people of color are kind of looking for. Um, you know, to be frank, I think that he can improve in, in terms of how he thinks about it and, and understands it when he has like his personal um, speaking engagements. So like in personal interviews, like where it's just him and it's not necessarily like his campaign tweeting out something or putting out a statement in the press. Um, you know, it, it's, it captures that language of talking about intersectionality, but he, he's made some comments where it doesn't really capture it the way that it should mm -hmm. um, because he kind of sticks to a certain script that focuses on kind of the his economic policy or like healthcare. So I think, you know, he could use some practice with that because again, people people are attracted to how you communicate as a candidate. Like that's that's hugely important. Um, when Barack Obama was running and there was like this big thing about race, I don't even remember how it came up, but he like had a whole press conference about race and it was just so presidential. Mm -hmm. You know, everything else, you know, we we that's a separate story about his presidency, <laughs> but people wanted to know that he knew the language and he can talk about it and he under, and it seemed like he understood it. Mm -hmm. And I think that, ma that makes a difference. Yeah. I think one of the criticisms of Bernie that has some merit is that he's a class reductionist. Like he views all politics through the lens of class. And I think given how little we talk about class in the United States, um, it's, it's a welcome corrective to, to have somebody who's focusing on that. But especially in 2016, I think he's gotten better on this, but especially in 2016, he would get asked a question about criminal justice or the wealth gap or like whatever it is. And he'll pivot back to like Medicare for all or breaking up the banks or like whatever it is, like bread and butter, economic left wing populism. Um, 
And, you know, as we discussed last time, there is a case to be made that, you know, Medicare for all these universal programs, free college will disproportionately benefit people of color um, because they've been cut out of, of so many of these programs historically and programs that target the uh, people in poverty more than anyone else are going to disproportionately help people of color because of how well they're correlated. But I think, uh, and I want to talk about identity politics and intersectionality, but I, I think it's really important that he kind of like gets that the things related and, and it's not just, it's not just one thing. It's not just class. Yeah. I mean, because, because it is related, that makes it kind of easier to be able to sort of be fluent in it. You know, you can always say, you know, we have, you know, these high unemployment rates and high wealth gaps all over the country. You have, you know, corporate profiteers and they they tend to target black communities, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, these predatory credit card companies, when it comes to consumer debt, when it comes to subprime mortgages, it disproportionately targets black people. Boom. You just linked race and class and people get it's like, oh, like he knows what's going on in my community. If you just say the 1% and like that's the end of the conversation, it's like, I don't really know if he's talking about me. Yeah. Um, and we, because we don't talk about class that much in America, a lot of, you know, folks who are not kind of in these less spaces don't necessarily connect like the 1% with their everyday lives. Mm -hmm. So I think a big part of it is connecting it to people's everyday lives. And, you know, you call that identity or culture or whatever, but it's just how does it affect like me and the people around me? And that's why kind of making those connections is important. It's making it relatable to people so that they, you know, really know that you will implement these policies that will benefit their, their community. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was looking at Bernie's uh, stances in 2016. I've had some some friends, mostly on Facebook, um, from like the effective altruism world, pushing content about Bernie not being good at immigration or criminal justice uh, the last time he ran. And then I was like looking into it, and it seems like he's, his policies are a lot better on this. Um, have you been following those changes at all? In terms of like immigration? Immigration and criminal justice are the two that come most to mind. Well, because I feel like he he had evolved on criminal justice then, um, but I'm kind not... Kind of like in real time. Like in, yeah, yeah. Not so that he was, again, the best record of any of the people running in 2016 on criminal justice. It's just relative to how progressive he was on so many other issues. Um, he just did not really have a good understanding, I think, of mass incarceration. And um, Sean King has an article about his personal experience with Bernie and a conversation he had, I think, back in 2016 as well. Um, where Bernie said to him, like, I didn't appreciate the severity of this issue. Um, and I really think he took it to heart, which is reassuring because you don't need somebody who's going to be running everything from the get-go. You need somebody who will respond to activism and respond to information and, and popular pressure. Yeah, and I, I think that is one of the good things about his, you know, of, of many about um, how he approaches politics is that I think he pays attention to grassroots organizing and, and um, the movement more broadly. Um, so he is responsive to those things. So when Black Lives Matter activists interrupted him a few years back, I think he sat with them at some point, I don't know when, um, and adjusted you know, some of his platform to incorporate those recommendations. And so I think he's more attuned to that than any of the other candidates. And that's going to be important because when you get in these these circles, you're, you know, you've got you're the commander in chief. You're not going to be around grassroots organizers um, to that extent. And someone who kind of has a way of keeping his ear on the ground is going to be vital for whoever the president is. And I don't think there's anyone else who has that the same way he does. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he's less beholden to the special interests that dominate our politics now than any other candidate. Um, Elizabeth Warren, to a lesser extent, is as well. Um, and I think, you know, the fact that he's move, movable on this means that people who are not, you know, wealthy or super well connected could actually affect uh, the agenda in a, in a real life with him, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. So are you openly supporting anybody or are you... No, I'm not. Okay. You, you write about the, this issue, I guess. Uh, yeah. I don't really write too much about domestic politics. So. Say that again? I, I don't write too much about you know, American politics, um, so I feel less, uh, I don't know, I feel like I can speak more candidly about it. Yeah, I'm a little bit more fettered to kind of endorse people or campaign or anything like that. Um, Cause I, you know, because I do journalism work and you know, so I don't endorse candidates, of course, like I'm, I'm gonna vote and I support you know, progressive movements, I'm a socialist, so 
that's what I like to bring attention to. I like to bring attention to the movement and the policy behind the movement and the candidates who are talking about those issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool. So I, I want to talk a little bit about identity politics. This is uh, one of the most loaded terms, I think, in the discourse today. Um, and it's on my mind because uh, there's a recent episode of Hear the Burn, which is the Bernie Sanders campaign podcast hosted by Brianna Joy Gray, who's a friend of yours, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with a Barbara Smith, who is one of the women who coined the term identity politics, I think back in the 70s. And I'm forgetting the name of the, it's a Combahee River Collective. River Collective, yes, thank you. Um, and it's really interesting because Barbara Smith. Uh, is a black lesbian who is part of social justice movements for her entire life. Uh, really impressive, you know, career. And Bernie Sanders is a old white guy running for president. He, he's Jewish, but like, you know, if you just look at the very simplistic understanding of identity politics in uh, kind of like how people think about it, why, why did she not, you know, get behind Kamala Harris or something earlier in her career? Um, and I guess, what, what is your understanding of identity politics? And then we could talk about what Smith was saying as well. Yeah, it was a way for marginalized uh, communities. And because it was a collective of black women, it was a way for them to be able to say, sort of within this big tent, what are the issues that are being lost because we've got this sort of big tent politics when we're talking about sort of um, liberals and the Democratic Party. So if people are not kind of specifying these issues, then marginalized groups are not necessarily going to have their issues addressed. Um, The way that it's evolved, I don't even know how, at what point this happened, but I think someone just heard the word identity politics and they assigned their own definition to it that these women did not assign to it because Mm -hmm. they always had sort of this class, gender, and race analysis that was um, fundamentally, you know, linked with all of this. all of these theories were were linked together, where they recognize where they recognize the you know the failures of capitalism of patriarchy. Um, so it's kind of the opposite of what we do now, where we say, oh, it's just kind of putting on a front, having a person of color or someone with a, a marginalized identity, and that's enough to you know pull support. They're saying no, <laughs> we want their issues, you know, their substantive issues addressed. Um, and so that's what my understanding of identity politics, I mean, that is what the definition that they created is. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that it's been sort of co-opted is that, you know, you can kind of go out there without having this triple analysis of race, class, and gender and get support just because of, you know, how you identify. So that's like identification politics, not identity politics that, as, you know, they created it. Yeah. Yeah, and they kind of preceded this uh, term intersectionality, which came out, uh, was coined a few years later, I think. Um, By my professor, actually, Kimberly Williams-Crenshaw at Columbia Law School. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and she's speaking to the intersection of race, class, gender, sexuality, um, and how these uh, forces can overlap, and actually, it's different than being, like, being poor and black is different than being poor and white. Uh, it's also different than being rich and black. Um, and I think it's pretty obvious to anybody who thinks about it for more than five seconds that these things matter. Um, and I think uh, on, on the podcast, Barbara Smith said her understanding of identity politics is not about building a hierarchy of oppression, which is like this caricature you sometimes see of like the oppression Olympics, you know, the person with the most marginalized identity is now the most empowered in these spaces. And like a straight white dude has no place to talk and no, there's no role for role for him. Um, but it's instead about understanding how oppressions fit together. Um, I think that really captures it well. And I think, uh, you know, part of her reason for supporting Bernie was that like, he's just been around, he's been fighting in these movements for a really long time and was part of the civil rights movement. Like actually not just lifeguarding at a (laughs) pool in a black neighborhood, right? which Joe Biden thinks is sufficient to claim. Yeah. And saying they jumped on your lap. Have you heard that whole speech? The corn pop speech? It's so absurd. No, it's the speech about these kids jumping on his lap at the pool. No, the corn spot, the corn pop speech goes on. There's an extended version that I watched multiple times. Oh my God. But anyway, I'll find a link to that. I've got it. I'll send it to you. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds like something to see. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I I think, uh, it's just interesting because the, 
I, I guess I went through a phase in college where I was like kind of against identity politics because it seemed like the opposite way of how you'd want to build a movement, right? Like emphasizing difference and, and like how we're all like our own unique identities, which, you know, we're all individual people with like our own lived experience. I'll never know what it's like to be you or vice versa or anybody else for that matter. But to build effective movements, you need solidarity. I didn't have the word for it at the time, but... Um, I, I guess I've kind of evolved into thinking that like you have to talk about these differences because it really is like different between how our lived experiences are in, in ways that correlate to our identities. Um, and I, I guess I, I'm thinking of a speech recently by a Bernie surrogate in uh, Iowa where had everyone's uh, hold hands with each other. And have you seen this? Um, he asked him to Was like, it squeeze. Agnew? Philip Agnew? I, it might have been. Um, he asked him to squeeze. You're, you're holding hands with your neighbor. And it's like, if you have ever wondered where your next meal is coming from, like squeeze your hand. If you have ever worked for minimum wage or struggled to, you know, to pay the bill, squeeze your hand. And kind of like going on and on. And, and you know, some things that definitely people in that crowd had never experienced before, but then eventually leading to universal things. It's like, if you believe that um, justice is like an idea whose time has come, like squeeze your hand and like bring everybody together and like demonstrating that, yes, we all have our own unique challenges and things that do divide us. But if we join forces and like, there's more of us than there are of them, we can actually build something great. And sorry, I'm just rambling now, mm -hmm. but um, I, I don't know if you had seen that or like what your thoughts are on, on this kind of like solidarity versus emphasizing difference. Yeah, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. And I think that is um, sort of the logical leap that has led to people sort of disparaging the idea. I think what is important, I'll say this as, you know, a black woman grew up kind of in a working class family, understanding the history of black people, the oppressions that we've had to experience in America, the way that capitalism has kind of uniquely affected us has not changed my, my belief that we need to get rid of the system because it harms everybody. Mm -hmm. um, I think if you're coming from a place where you're recognizing both kind of the the personal and um, the interpersonal and the things that affect your community um, if you do that that doesn't preclude you from understanding like kind of how the system works and operates and you know the larger impacts that it's having on people's lives or having you know sympathy for somebody else who doesn't look like you who's also um, experiencing the same thing so it's a little odd to me that there there is that assumption that people can't look past themselves just because they feel things differently or mm. they experience life differently. Um, we can you know, talk and, and chew gum at the same time. And so I think if you sit down with you know, the universal you, I think if people sit down and talk with you know, people of color who are also leftists, like they'll, people will start to get it a little bit more. Um, and I think that, that is the benefit of sort of having alliances and, and having solidarity is that you can look at somebody and say, okay, you, you probably do have a different experience than I do, but we're having this conversation and I get it. I see you, you see me, like how do we like solve this crisis together? Mm -hmm. um, but if you just say, I don't see the difference, like, well, I feel it. I don't really know if you understand what I'm talking about yeah. then. And there's always gonna be kind of this, um, people aren't really gonna be seeing eye to eye because you're not seeing like the things that they see. Um, and so when you can communicate that, because I do organizing work as well, and I'm not going to be able to understand everybody's lives who I interact with, but I listen to them, you know, and like listening is a big part of that, and not me speaking over them and saying, well, you know, we're all the same, so let's just fight this thing. It's like, no, like that's not even how human, you know, interactions work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like people want to know that you understand, that yeah. you get it. Like that's just a basic like tool of negotiation. Yeah. Um, you know, you repeat back with the terms that they said to you. Like if I understand correctly, you're saying that you feel this, this, and that, and you might have different kind of terms of engagement and at a different goal that you have in mind, but you can get to the same. Um, some some sort of consensus and so i think that is what we should be be looking at um i don't know if that like is a little bit all over the place but i, I gave you something much more all over the place so <laughs> it was uh, quite a challenge i think to to try and respond to my incoherent <laughs> rambling but um yeah I, I think it just people get uncomfortable when they have to consider the fact that you know somebody else might have like have it harder than them and i, I think especially 
I don't know. I'm, th- I'm thinking of like the kind of like classic disaffected white guy who is maybe like a Joe Rogan listener or whatever, who, who will acknowledge that like racism has historically been a big problem, but then they'll think that like, it's actually really hard to be like uh, a young white guy these days and um, people don't like understand their struggle. And, and I think, um, I think a lot of the language of just asserting, I'm reminded of the expression, which is like when you're used to being on top, equality feels like oppression. Um, and, and the language that's saying like, hey, no, like we have a seat at this table too. And I think in, in that statement from the, the Combahee River Collective, um, they say like, we're not asking to dominate, we're just asking to be human. Like that's, that's enough for us. Um, and I think it's, it's just hard for, for some people to process and it, it takes, takes time and it takes a certain kind of empathy also for just like people who say you grew up in a town that was like 98% white and you had never really experienced it. Like maybe you were a poor kid in that town um, and you had never really experienced other types of oppressions that people experience. And then you like go to college, you move to a city and, and you're hearing these different perspectives you haven't heard before. Um, I think there are better and worse ways to bring people along on that ride. I think emphasizing our common interests and, and political projects and, and a positive vision of solidarity and, and a, a policy agenda that will actually help everybody um, is a really good solution to that. Yeah, I think those are the things that can transcend, um, for sure, like transcend people's differences. And, you know, when people do get in the room, you know, there has to be this recognition that those, those differences um, can be acknowledged without it creating division. Yeah. And I think a lot you'll you'll still win. Like I, I think it's going to be almost impossible to have like this larger sort of socialist project without getting you know people of color at the table who you say okay you experience you know you've had this history of, of white supremacy and capitalism that has literally taken that you know has um, stolen, you know, your labor, your, your labor, your land, your resources, your, you know, homes, your financial security for decades. It's hard to get them in the room to want to be a part of this project if you're just saying, okay, forget that. <laughs> Let's just have solidarity. It's like we're still like ten steps behind. What kind of policies can address these things? Um, and so you can do that and still say. Also, everybody can benefit from universal health care. But if you don't speak the language that actually affects, you know, what they're experiencing on a, on a regular basis, on a daily basis, you know, black women, even if we're middle class, quote unquote middle class, you know, we still have in extremely like high amounts of student loan debt. And we're still kind of caregivers to our families. Like we're not able to uh, benefit materially the same ways that the average white family is. And so if you don't say those things, it's like, why would I want to join this movement? And so you cannot have, you know, a movement against capitalism if you don't have the people who are the most marginalized in it. Yeah, yeah I think that's super important. And I was thinking about this last night, uh, talking with a friend about Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, um, is trying to build that, that working class movement. Uh, but there was a photo, I think, of canvassers in Chicago, and most of the people were like white dudes. And Chicago is not mostly white dudes. <laughs> um, and this is something that I've experienced with DSA meetings, and uh, I think it's like a, a real issue. It's like there's a lot of just like white dudes in socialism, and that's not to say they shouldn't be there. Like I'm <laughs> one of those people, right? But uh, there's this real challenge of of getting a movement that looks more like the places it's trying to represent. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think it's, you know, important to recognize the number of, of black movements and spaces that have already preceded, you know, that came before people even knew about DSA in some of these communities. So, you know, there's a large, a, a solid history of, of um, you know, black labor in Chicago, of, you know, the Rainbow Coalition, of Black Panther Party movement, of black socialists who were there. Um, and so everyone doesn't need to be in the same organization, mm-hmm. you know, even within spaces where, um, it, you know, it might be black and leans, you know, one way ideologically, there's still disagreements. But, um, you know, we don't need like one massive DSA to cover every single person. I think DSA can have some have meetings and they might have like those spaces that 
where black people feel comfortable there or other people of color feel comfortable there. There are also existing movements elsewhere that people have already been a part of, but you can still align on you know a variety of issues. But you know, I don't know. Are you, are you in DSA? Uh, I'm not like a dues pay member, but I, I go to things. Okay, you know, and so just thinking about it on like kind of a logistical level, these are people that you're going to be with like every week. If you already have your tribe, you know, you already you have an agenda, you've got your platform, you don't necessarily need to leave that. But if there's, you know, a protest, you're doing like a Occupy Wall Street, those groups can align. If yeah. you're thinking about political organizing, you can advocate for the same candidate. Um, I think it's really hard to get every single person under the exact same umbrella and you know to be you know completely honest here a lot of times when we do have those spaces people of color don't necessarily rise to leadership positions Mm -hmm. um, for a variety of reasons and so you have an agenda that's not necessarily reflective of you know a diverse group even when you do get it Um, and people are, are cautious about that and that's fine like that that's the reality that we live in but that doesn't mean those organizations can't work together in some sort of way um, because I think a lot of leftists how whatever you know color they are ethnicity they recognize that we still need to align somehow yeah <laughs> but it doesn't have to necessarily be like under like one organization yeah no I, I think that makes a ton of sense and so your vision is more maybe like issue-based advocacy or around like certain projects where organizations that maybe speak to like specific needs of different groups of people can come together on those things but not necessarily this one giant umbrella. Yeah, yeah, I mean, do Democrats all, you know, we vote D, but that doesn't mean that we all fall under one umbrella. We have different coalitions, we have different um, priorities, you have progressive caucuses, you've got, you know, all types of, you know, different um, divisions within that. Not that the Democratic Party is a great example, <laughs> but... It's a super effective organization. We know <laughs> super, <and love. laughs> as we've seen over the last yeah. few days. But I, yeah, I just don't see logistically how that... It's just too many fucking people. Like, it's, <laughs> yeah. let people have their space. Like, it's probably folks who they live with, you know, they can just go around the corner to someone that they know, that they've known for years, and they decided to join this, you know, organization with them together. And, and that's fine. And we should be able to be comfortable with that and still sort of find coalitions and find... Um, yeah, I guess the coalition is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Find coalitions of, among those groups. Yeah. And well, that's just me. You know, I don't know. You know, no one knows how what the ultimate answer is, but that's just kind of how I see it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody, if you're building a good DSA or a good left organization, everybody should be welcome as long as they're signing up for the larger project, of course. Like if you're a racist or xenophobic or whatever, like uh, you'd have to check those beliefs at the door. But um, in terms of like identity, I, I think uh, there is a failure if, if people of color, if women, uh, LGBT people aren't feeling included and welcome. Um, Have you personally had any experience with DSA? Uh, I just have a number of friends who are in it. I can't say that I've had like gone to meetings per se, unless I was like accidentally in one, I didn't realize it. (laughs) You know, but I'm in an organization, it's a a black left-leaning organization where black radicals based in East New York, Brooklyn called Operation Power. And the folks who, you know, are in it, I've known since I was what, maybe the co-founders I've known since I was like 12, wow. 13. Um, and we focus on um, you know, a, a lot of sort of working class issues and we wanna get more black radicals into elected office so that we can fight for real affordable housing in, you know, in New York, um, so that we can fight for um, just changing kind of state rules about how how things are are done because there's this large like democratic machine that doesn't help upstart candidates and so we've kind of uh, demolished that that sort of structure um, and there are some things that are specific to black you know to black people that other groups won't necessarily just instinctively know mm-hmm. you know so a lot of us struggle with just having a business and you know we're socialists but at the same time like people still need businesses to go to and it's almost like we're living living in a domestic colony because we don't own any of it in our communities mm. and so there is no you know circulation of, of of income and you know that's people need that we need the sort of this income for our tax base for our ed, for our education um and so if we're not thinking about those things then you know no one else is going to do that so like we have to do that yeah yeah and, and I think uh, identity politics, politics, when they coined it, they were thinking about like 
their power comes from your identity. And if you're a black lesbian uh, feminist in the 1970s, you know, if they are liberated, then everybody else is almost definitionally. And this was maybe before awareness, as much awareness around like transgender issues and, and everything. But um, it really is true that like, if you look at the, the least uh, or the most oppressed groups and you can like fight for, for that group, then you're bringing everyone else along for the ride. Yeah. Um, well, anything you'd like to plug or close on? I really enjoyed the conversation, part two. <laughs> um, what do I want to plug? Watch the movie. It's good. It's good, folks. Thank you. I'd like to do more. It's just so time consuming, and I've got 80 jobs. <laughs> so I don't know when I'm going to do the next one, but you can go to, I think it's bit.ly slash left out. 2020. 2020. Cool. And I'll, I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes as well. <laughs> Hopefully that works. I just like did the bit.ly like today. So yeah. I don't know if it's still working. <laughs> no, bit.ly's are my friend. Um, and I've also really enjoyed, you've been writing a lot more for the guardian, which is pretty cool. Yeah. 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 So if you just go to the guardian and just, I guess, look up my name, we got some, some fire in there. If I say so myself. Yeah, I, I, I'd say so. <laughs> Appreciate it, Garrison. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Malika. Thank you. This has been The Most Interesting People I Know. If you enjoy this show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. This helps new people find the podcast and validates my self-worth. If you don't enjoy the show, please keep your thoughts to yourself. Or email me at mostinterestingpeople27 at gmail.com. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Babrowitz.